And I remember having no food, no preparation, just a pair of bloody, just a pair of runners and some board shorts on. Just no idea what I was doing. And it was the middle of the night, it rained, and I was just, I thought about turning back a thousand times. And it, it was just like this, you know, I talk about it, I talk about it in my book, the conflicting voices in your head. So that one voice that's derogatory and brings you down and, and it's it's self-deprecating and it's belittling. And we have all got that voice that holds us back from doing those things. Um, and I remember that night, I talk about it in the book, that this other voice started to shine through that just said, Benji, you got to go. you got to keep moving forward. you got to just get there. Don't, don't worry. You've got, you've got some water. You're, you're not... You're not alone, even though I was alone in the in the darkness, and it's just like this conflict that the the two little voices in my head just firing away, and um, yeah, I got there. I got I got into the camp you know, after midnight or something, and got to the southernmost point at daybreak in the morning, and um, hiked all the way back, and that was sort of the start of that this this crazy adventure that took me across Australia. I'm Ren McDonald and this is The Hope Initiative, a show dedicated to learning about humans on planet Earth or I speak with everyday people to find moments of success and struggle in their life to help inspire hope in yours. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Hope Initiative. My name is Rin McDonald. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 144 with Benji Brunden. Benji is an adventurer amongst many things and in this conversation we came together after respective Joes in our lives recommended him as a guest on the podcast and it just so happened that we lived within walking distance of each other. In this conversation we discussed Benji's life, born to a Filipino mother and Swedish father, growing up in rural Western Australia, his life has seemingly always been full of adventure, only not always the fun kind. We discuss childhood trauma, marriage, divorce, and the universal plan that seemingly is there for all of us, and plenty more. Stoked to make this connection with Benji. Thank you again, mate, for your time and kindness in all that you shared. You're a legend, not only for your Guinness World Record, but for all that you've done and will no doubt continue to do. I hope you all enjoy listening. There's links and everything to support Benji and the show in the show notes. I really hope you do so. Thanks again, and please enjoy this conversation with Benji Brunden. Benji Brunden, welcome to the Hope Initiative. Yeah, man. Go nuts. Thanks. Are we on now? This is it. Wow. <laughs> Sweet. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, bro. I, I hit record like six minutes ago, so I like to hit record early just in case any gold gets dropped in the pre-conversation, but we've been chatting now for probably 20 minutes. Yeah, man, we have. And I was like, you know, we're having this chat um, as we're getting to know each other and meet, and I'm like, I shouldn't be telling him this stuff because this is all good. <laughs> this is all good podcast stuff. But anyway, so yeah, no, it's been good, man. Yeah, it's been great meeting you. I feel like I know you more than just about any guest that I've had on the show. I did some early episodes with parents and some family, so obviously know a lot about them. But yeah, you, as we'll come to learn, have written a book called Hunting Fear. We've got a few copies here on the table, but I finished that about a week ago. And it's a great book. But before we get into the book specifically and, and your life, I wanted to short, sort of just share how it came to be. So two previous guests of mine, one of them is a very good friend of mine, Joseph. 
who lives near near me and mm-hmm. funnily enough near you picked up this book in one of those little libraries that sit out the front of some houses here yeah. in the eastern suburbs i'm sure they're around australia and potentially around the world as well for any international listeners mm-hmm. but just like a little box essentially that's got like a cute little roof yeah people uh put old books in and grab new books out and it's kind of like a community yeah uh sharing of books that's it that's it so he grabbed your book out and he'd i think started reading it a few years ago and misplaced it or something that was from memory what what had happened to him but when he saw it again he was like oh my god this is this is that book so he devoured it in like a couple of days gave it to his girlfriend who read it as well and then they were out for a walk yeah one day and they happened to walk past your house and you'd put it across pretty well across the road <laughs> yeah. of this little library it was a um it was actually uh it was actually a pretty funny moment because my housemate was just inside the door yeah and, um, you know, he he just thinks I'm just another dork that he lives with. Um, so I was out the front of my house just loading my, my, my truck for work. Yep. And these two people walk past and I have my dog out the front. My dog, everyone stops to pat my dog and, you know, obviously, oh, he's such a cute dog. And oh, thanks, <laughs> you, know, you know, he's very well trained and all that sort of stuff. And then they kept on walking and I, I didn't think anything of it. And then they, they came back and this woman had a look on her face and she goes, are you, are you Benji? And I'm like, yeah. She goes, oh my God, I've read your book. And I was like, no way. <laughs> and then she told me the story and yes, fair enough. When I did move into that house in Kew, I did put some books over in the, and I actually signed them like to the residents of Kew. Life is a daring adventure. Have a great time. Enjoy this adventure. Have, enjoy the travels and whatever else. So, Love it. so anyway, we had a conversation they 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 recognised me from the book, which was um, hilarious because obviously, the cheers, I just finished reading your book and yeah. I loved it, and then my housemate was listening to the whole thing, <laughs> and he just thought you're such a dork. <laughs> yeah. It was the first time I'd ever been uh, publicly recognised outside of a motorbike event. So yeah, amazing. And so I'm pretty sure that night <laughs> I'd had the book for maybe a few days mm-hmm. already, and I'd read the first chapter the night before. And so when my mate gets home, Joseph, he then goes, oh, we just met Benji. You've got to have him on the podcast. Mm. And then another guest, Johanna, who's been on the podcast, and I'll put her, her link in the, in the show notes, she'd messaged me on the official Instagram account and just was like, hey, Rin, don't know if you take guest submissions, but I've got a friend who you know, yeah. would like to maybe be on some podcasts, and I thought of you what do you think? And then she sends me your profile. And it was just like these two moments, both people recommending the same thing. And that happened like a few days after the book. And it's just like, holy shit, dude, like the universe yeah. is bringing crazy. this together. It was crazy. So, and also Joe lives in far like country, country, country. country. And how I met Joe is I was riding motorbikes in the desert mm. and um, me and a friend were like, and I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Mm. So we had full kit, three litres of water, full tool belt, armour, knee, knee braces, the whole lot, ready to, to go to war. Ready like to rumble. Apocalyptic, you know. Mad Max does. Uh, as, if we're, as if we're going out. We're doing about 300 k's that day and we, we were just on the tail end of it. And uh, we pulled into this, like it was a dry lake, I think it was. Mm. And then there was this, just this guy rolled up on a 350 Husky, which is just like a small dirt bike, with just wearing like 
just silks and a tiny little backpack, no water, and a bottle, a six hundred ml bottle of water. And we're like, "What are you doing, Eddie, mate?" And then we got talking, and um, we went for a ride together that day. We're now good friends. He actually helped me a lot getting the truck ready, which we'll talk about later as well. And Joe's his wife, wow. and then that was, and they live out in country Victoria. So the two connections from Joseph, your friend, and Joe, your ex guest, are light years apart. Mm. It's really interesting. It is. So, yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. Already enjoyed getting to know you, not only through the book, but just in, in chatting. So how I typically like to start these conversations, and I'll definitely recommend people check out the book and learn more about you, but there's going to be plenty of people who don't know you in listening to this. So I like to say, starting with your earliest memory, if you could, wherever that lands, bring oh. us forward, touching on a few key moments, and I like mm-hmm. to sort of challenge the guests to say in three to four minutes – Bring us forward to present day, recording this in August 2023. Wow, okay. Earliest earliest memory. <sighs> Look, it would actually have to be probably growing up in Tom Price in the Pilbara. And I actually can remember riding my bike through a flooded creek bed at the end of our road at the bottom of this what I thought was a huge mountain was a little hill and it was only once a year that the, the creeks would flood and because um, we had like the tropical cyclones coming through the Pilbara up, <clears throat> up in the northwest of Australia and we were in the desert so that was one of my earliest memories is riding, yeah, riding bikes in the floodwaters. How old were you? Oh, I must have been four or five, maybe four. Yeah, yeah I, I had other memories but that was when I was a bit older but just being a Filipino kid in the desert was probably my earliest memory. Like, I started life in the desert. My mum was a Filipino woman. My dad was a Swedish miner. How the hell do those two people meet? Mm. Well, and, end, and end up there. And end up there in the, in the middle of a, a population of 2,000 people, all expats. Then we moved to um, Melbourne when I was 12. Different part, mum, mum had a different partner. Then we lived in a zoo. Used to feed lions every day before school. That was the sort of childhood I had. I'm now thir- I'm 40 now. I've lived in 39 houses. Wow. So between those two ha- those two places we lived we moved around a lot. So it was a pretty uh um restless childhood. Yeah. I uh, spent a lot of time growing up in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. I was sort of raised by a foster family which were a white Australian family. So I sort of learned how to be a white Australian kid. After becoming, after being a Filipino kid for most of my childhood, yeah. and then I was lucky enough to get married. I was also lucky enough to get divorced, <laughs> and that sort of sent me off on this course. Once the divorce came through, I spent some time in the navy as well as a reserve diver. I've also spent some time in the police force as a cadet. Again, we can talk about that a bit more, and. Yeah, so after the divorce, it sort of sent me on this crazy trajectory through my life where I went on these wild adventures across Australia and I set a world record in 2019 becoming the first person to cross all 10 Australian deserts solo and unsupported on a motorbike and obviously the first Filipino as well to do the same (laughs) thing. Um, Probably the only Filipino who's crossed the desert. And then when I finished that and the record got... Um, recognised or the feet got recognised. I wrote a book about the whole journey from losing everything to setting world records, learning how to ride a motorbike in the process. 
And then now here we are. Here we are. Here we are. So that's a little bit about me. Appreciate it, mate. Thank you so much. So going back to that kid, I'm guessing it was on a push bike, that first memory that you shared. Yeah, it was actually. On a BMX, yep. Because you mentioned in the book how you're pretty new to riding when you take on that that feat riding across the 10 deserts. But back to the you riding that pushy, what were some more early memories? What was life like growing up? You said a town of 2,000, and I believe you've got mm-hmm. a younger brother. Yep. Who's how, how old? He's 10 bit. years, or sorry, he's seven years younger than me. Okay. So, so he probably wasn't around then in that first memory. No, he, was, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't born yet. But, yeah, so life, we grew up, it was, uh, look, in my earliest memories, we had with a, a happy family unit. Yeah. It was me, my sister, my older sister, and my mum and my dad. And my dad was, a like I said, a, so back in the 70s, a lot of European men or travelling men would, would come to Australia and part of the requirements to get permanent residency was for them to work, do their time in the mines. Okay. You can imagine what mines were like in the 70s. Challenging. <clears throat> pretty challenging environment, pretty tough. So, yeah, Tom Price was just this town that was like, all I remember when I was a kid was Swiss guys, German guys, French guys, Dutch. Wow. There, was no, there were no Australians. Everyone was just a, um, a foreigner. Yeah. And look, there was no women in town, so all those foreigners went overseas and the, the preferred country to find a wife was the Philippines. Okay. So my dad went over there when he was, like, again in the 70s and, yeah, just put, the, put a, an ad in the Filipino Gazette for Western Man Seek's wife, had thousands of replies. Wow. And my mum was a writer, so she got the, I think they continued, they had a, a, a pen pal relationship for a, yeah, a few years. Eventually he flew down, you know, flew to the Philippines and met her in the province. Like, and I'm talking the province. What's the province? The province is like, um, it's like country towns. But for my mum, it was like, imagine flying to Manila and flying to another island an hour an hour away and then yeah. taking a six-hour boat, no, bu- bu- uh, like a bus drive oh. into the jungle. Into wow. the jungle. So that's where your mum lived? That's where my mum was born and raised. Yeah, she was the youngest of 13. Whoa. Mm. So you can imagine when my dad went there, <clears throat> it, wasn't a, it wasn't a tourist destination. So she, he was like, for many, many people, it was the first time they'd seen a white man. Yeah, well. And the first time I went there in 2010 to track down my family, it was the first time a lot of the kids had ever seen, even though I'm not white, yep. but I'm, you know, five foot 11, 90 kilos. Bigger than most Filipinos. Bigger than most Filipinos. So and yeah. I look like a Westerner. I look like a foreigner to them. So for them, that look, we got photos and everything. But wow. yeah, so that was, so my f- earliest memories were that the happy family life, uh, mum and dad, and just a Filipino community of women and all my friends and all my cousins and all my relatives were Filipino. But look, my also, look, the, 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 the flip side of that is my dad was also a, a raging alcoholic. So uh, he was never violent, but he just couldn't get his shit together, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, my mum just took, took the hard road and she left him when we were really young. You were five, right? You mentioned that in the book. Yeah, it was about four or five, I think, at the time. So your um, older sister, was she from the same parents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was the same. So my, my sister and I share the same dad. But yeah, so life went from being, I guess, this this happy family hub to then my dad lost his job in the mines. The, the house that we lived in was provided by the mine. So we ended up in a commission house on like the outskirts of town near the single men's quarters. 
and that's you know single men's quarters is exactly what it, what it's is Same exactly time. what it is yeah. you know for all the miners that didn't have a family they lived at the the gambling degenerate end of town wow and that's where the the um the commission houses were and so that's where we lived and my mum was a filipino woman <sighs> you know my brother came along not long after and the dad was never to be seen again so my you know but so then life changed really quickly for us we went from having that that uh, family hub to then suddenly by the time I was 10, 11, 12, I was uh, up the street stealing food, you know, trying to find any, any kind of scraps in the supermarkets I could to, to kind of bring home and feed my brother and my sister. Wow. And um, so, yeah, it was just, it was a tough, it was a really, really tough childhood because we just lacked any support. Like my mum, she's a Filipino woman, she said she didn't get welfare. So. She wasn't wasn't entitled to the family tax benefit a, benefit A or B. She met this new guy. We moved to Melbourne, so she completely separated herself from the Filipino community as well. Right. So, what had no support from from the Filipino community in well, that sense, or no support from the Filipino community because when we left, look, she, because of the fact that she divorced my dad, it was frowned upon in the Filipino community, especially because he was the provider, or was supposed to be, but he wasn't. He so. was unable or not he, he he meant well but he just couldn't he couldn't get it together my, my dad was on the asperger's syndrome okay so he he lacked social cues he lacked good reasoning ability he racked good decision making he lacked good decision making skills yeah and he drank a lot like a lot yep. uh, we, he would my mom told him she didn't like to have alcohol in the house so he would hide beer in the bush Wow. And then in the afternoons, we'd go for walks together when they were still together, and we'd go walks walking through the desert together. When, and he would just hide, find the beers that he'd hidden, and drink like six to twelve beers on a walk. On a walk, and then they're like it's in forty degree heat in the Pilbara, and he'd be drinking a dozen beers on an afternoon walk, so that my mum couldn't see. And wow. then he'd go home. Obviously, I didn't realize at the time as a kid. But he'd be going home completely drunk, and she'd be, you know, pretty upset about it all. How were you, how were you? Were you were you upset when he left? Yeah. So we must have been. I must have been four or five. And yes, I I remember. Like he was in the driveway. My mum and dad had a massive fight, and he he, he had a, a Ford Falcon wagon which he ended up living in for, for many years as he drove around from different mining towns getting different jobs. But he packed up with all his belongings and he stood me out the front of the house and he said, Benji, you have to look after your mum and your sister now. You're the man of the house. You know? And that's... I remember that. So I took that role seriously. So I was always the protector in my family. Um, so, yeah, sorry for your listeners. It's got pretty dark suddenly, but this is just the way it was. So... Um, I was, yeah, five or six years old and looking after trying to be the man of the house, you know, what, what do you, how do you do that when you're a kid? But that was the responsibility I felt all through my life. So when my mum died years later, I, I took responsibility of my family and I sort of had to guide them through that dark, those dark times. But, um, yep. And you don't need to apologize by the way. No, no. Yeah. Sorry, man. But, I appreciate um, you sharing. Uh, so that was, that was, that was life. Yeah. That was life. So, but when we moved from Melbourne, uh, sorry, from the Pilbara to Melbourne with my mum's new partner, yeah, um, 
yeah, we just didn't have the support. We had no family, no Filipino support, no government welfare or tax benefits and whatever else. So, and obviously the, the relationship with the new guy didn't work out. Right. So he just ended up being abusive. It was, it was just, I can probably tell that story if you want, but um, yeah, he was just an abusive guy. So it was just me, my mum, my sister and my brother. Wow. And um, yeah, someone had to sort of try and keep it all together. But by then I was probably 14 or 15 and just really acting out in school, being a being a ratbag kid and kind of hanging out with all the wrong kids. So Right. I guess it's hard not having a stable male role model at mm. a young age. Yeah. Well so that that yeah, it really was because that uh that partner that I spoke about, you know, he, he was um look he was supposed to be some sort of um yeah, like a, a sol a, a a pillar in your life. Yeah. And he was completely useless. Even at the age of 14, I was, you know, taking the lead. And uh, I remember when my mum tried to, when she decided to finally leave him, we ended up getting into a, uh, they were arguing. <clears throat> anyway, we got into this, um, we, we got into an argument with over him not wanting us into the house and he locked the house and left the house, so... My mum didn't know what to do, so I went around the back, broke a window, broke into the house, and I just said, right, and my dad, I said, you do this, you do that, you go here, you grab that, I'm going to grab the stuff out of my brother's room, I'm going to get this truck loaded and get the hell out of here, you know. So I was already taking um, taking the lead, taking the lead, which uh, you know, I roll my eyes now because I just think what kind of 14-year-old kid needs to be doing that. But uh, So then it ended up being, anyway, look, ended up being a, a physical altercation between me and the the boyfriend <clears throat> and um yeah this guy just poured a whole jug of hot coffee all over me wow. um yeah it was pretty yeah pretty traumatic at the time but you know i just <laughs> i was laying on my back at the time i was i was undoing my my brother's bunk bed so i was under a a um yeah like a, a bed frame, a bed frame. Yep. so i just got up and i just beat the hell out of him you know wow. so and again what sort of 14 year old kid it sounds it's not a nice story to tell, but um, that was just the reality of our life. Like I had to be the one that was either wasn't going to take any shit from anyone, make the decisions, lead the way, steal the food from the supermarket. Make, you know, my sister was the she was a great cook. My sister was looking after us and cooking cooking meals when she was five years old. So it was nothing for me to. You know, and even my little, my, I had a, a, a core group of friends back then and we were all just a ratbag bunch. So I was the one, and they're giving me shopping lists of candy bars and chocolates and all sorts of things to steal yep. or, you know, jocks and socks from the, from Safeway. Yep. Like whatever, that's, whatever you need to do to survive. Whatever right? we needed was, was just going straight out down the front of my jumper. Um, so that's, but... Look, I can remember, so I was probably year nine and we were smoking weed and most of my friends were two or three years older than me in school and they'd already been kicked out of school or dropped out of school. The heavy drinkers, they all came from um, uh, the lowest socioeconomic classes of society. They were all problem ch children with single parent homes they were all, you know, they're all they're all just problem children, yeah, problem kids. So, 
I remember, I can remember this when I was 15 years old that we were all sitting in the in the bedroom, my bed, my sister's bedroom, and we were smoking weed. Yep. And the house was just, it was just a halfway party house by then because my sister was acting out, I was acting out, all her friends were in the same mindset and so were all my friends because, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Mm. So we weren't playing, you know, I wasn't hanging out with the, the star kids at the, on the volleyball team. <laughs> so, but I remember then... Uh, just looking around and said, you know what, I I don't want this life. I want I don't I, I can see where this life leads and yep. this is not the life for me. I can't I can't I can't follow I can't follow these in these footsteps and go where this where this path leads. So I, I can remember when I was fifteen years old I had this I didn't even realise it, but I had a growth mindset. Yep. Already. So, look, I got out of there. I went and moved with my with, – I went and lived with my dad and finished year 10. Yeah, where was he we, living? He was, in, he was still in Pilbara. Oh, wow. Yeah, still working in different mine sites and, but he had a stable job driving taxis at the time. Yeah. So for me at the time to, to come away from where I was living and finish my year 10, get, get year 10 qualified, I guess you could call it, because I failed year 9. That's right. I failed year 9 as a – as a kid, just I didn't go to school. I wasn't going. And when I was at school, I was stoned. Right. Yeah. So I remember that for me, becoming a year 10 graduate was, and I left school and became a, joined, I got an apprenticeship. But that, I was the only one in my group of friends that, that got that year 10. Do you know what I mean? Like that was a huge achievement. Totally. And so like that's that was the the level of, of like, um the achievement at that time. Yeah. Where, where do you think that growth mindset came from? Like to be in that environment as young kids, I feel like we're so impressionable yeah. by the immediate environment for you to have the sense to essentially extract yourself out of yeah. Melbourne and go back into the sort of like North and Northern WA yeah. is pretty massive. Yeah, it was, it was, look, I, I don't, I just, I can, I can, I can still clearly remember they're sitting around like, and I loved my friends. Don't get me wrong; they were the like when you come from a broken home like that, yeah. your friends are your 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 family, your family. But I loved them, and I wanted them to come on this journey with me. I wanted them to to do better things with me. And look, that's that's why I was always let down by them in the end. You know, that's another story. But um, but yeah, no, I, I just remember thinking, I I can't, I can't. This this isn't the life for me. Like. Smoking weed and sitting around doing nothing is not where I see my future. But that's where my future will. This, that's where this path will take me. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so I chose fitness. I chose fitness over over the drugs. Yeah. And joined the football club and had um, played football for ten or twelve years and you know that was a much, much, much more. It's just a family community environment. Yeah. So it had its challenges as well. But um, especially, look, I was still moving around a lot. I was still trying to find my way because then I went to Western Australia, finished school, I came back, I did an apprenticeship. By then I was living with like a foster family because my mum had a new partner, wasn't wasn't working out with him either. And it was just, her life was chaos. So I found stability with, a, with like a foster family 
And I was kind of back and forth with them for three years while I did my apprenticeship and nice. they were like the rock and they kind of gave me some sort of structure and stability. And they certainly helped a lot when my mum passed. So my mum passed away quite suddenly when I was 19. Again, I'd finished an apprenticeship. I'd, I'd taken off to go work and I just wanted to travel and work around Australia, do that thing. Got got all the way to, to Karatha, which is back in the Pilbara, and I got the call from... From from Victoria and said your mum's really sick. She need you need to come home and, and be with her. So I just came straight home, sold my car, borrowed some money off the foster family, and yeah. Then I just I was like my mum's full time carer for the last three months. She was wow. I wouldn't say look, she's not. I wasn't my. I was working. I got back to work every day because I needed to work. I needed to provide. I needed to make sure like my brother had again. He's got, he needs someone to help. I just needed to be there. And then I just helped. I looked after my mum in the evenings as best I could. She had a three three month fight with bowel cancer. By the time they found it, it was it was too far. It was already in her bones. So she did some radiotherapy treatment, and um, they just kind of tried to make her comfortable. And it was less than three months, and she passed away. So wow. yeah, I was a nineteen year old kid, and I remember. Yes, yeah, she passed away. Yeah, I was with her. You know, I was with her. I was with her at her bedside when she was really sick. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, I I remember she just looked straight at me, and I just said to her, "Mum, you don't have to worry about a thing. You know, Noi's going to be fine, which is my brother. I'm going to be fine, and you just you you know Michelle's going to be fine. Yeah, we're so proud, so proud of you." And your brother, your son will grow to be a proud man too. And I can promise you that. You don't have to worry about him. I'm going to take care of him. Mm. And then, yeah, she passed away, man. <clears throat> just like that. So, Well, shortly after you said yeah, like those words? Just, yeah, in those moments, yeah. Wow. Um, so those, you know, I'm getting a little bit choked up here. But <clears throat> so that was, again, I took that, that role of... Um, being that provider and that that carer for my family, yeah, really seriously. So, um, yeah. So for the next seven or maybe really ten years, I, I was his primary carer while he grew up and went through adolescence. Yeah, I just worked really hard, did all those things. The football club really supported me in that time, you know. But again, the football club was a huge drinking culture for sure. Huge drinking culture, and don't get me wrong. I embraced it. <laughs> but at the same time, I can still also remember sitting in the football club saying, this is not where I want to see my future. This is not the path for me. If I stay here in this small town, at this football club, I'll just drink beers and I'll, be, I'll end up being one of those old guys at the bar that just have never left. And they talk about the glory days. Yeah. So I just wanted that. Um, I, I joined the Navy as a reservist. I read books on travel, you know. Again, all the books I wrote, I read were, were they were so funnily enough. My my growth mindset. The first growth books I read about were how the SAS prepared our soldiers in the SAS would prepare for selection. Yep. And that's all about overcoming mental barriers and and pushing past what um, what your belief systems are and your mental mental capabilities. Because I wanted to be that guy. Right. Yeah. So while I was raising a raising a child and sitting at the football club dreaming of 
far off adventures in wild countries, you know, watching movies like Tears of the Sun and Band of Brothers and just getting all like choked up emotionally because I wanted to be in Africa, you know, those sorts of emotions. Like I just lived and breathed it. So my first growth mindset books were all about men- mental conditioning and mental because I wanted to join the, the special forces. Yeah. How old were you when you were reading those? Is this my f- when your mum was still around? Or yeah, still around? so my first, so what I first, re- so this is a funny story. I remember I went to, re- I went into a recruiting office when, so you had to be 17 to join the, the military. Mm-hmm. I went into a recruit, I borrowed a friend's suit because at the time, teen- as a teenager, my family broken home, like my, everything was chaos at, at home. Yeah. I went into a recruiting office when I was 16 and nine months and I borrowed a friend's suit and it was two sizes too big and it looked ridiculous. And I said to the recruiting officer, sir, I had no idea. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't even a sir, he was a petty officer. And I said, sir, I just want to be a clearance diver. I've read every single, I've read the description of every single job in the, in the, in the Navy and I just know that the, being a clearance diver is the toughest job on the planet and I'm going to be a clearance diver. And I, was, I was just had, I had my head, mind set on it. And the recruiter looked at me and goes, mate, 16 years old, do yourself a favour. Go get an apprenticeship, do a trade, come back when you're, when you're 20 years old, especially if you want to be a... Each. So that was it. So for me, that, um, military life was over. It wasn't until I was 22 and I realised you could join as a reservist. So looking at even... Because I had my brother, you know, and I, I started the trip travelling... And I had this adventurous, this this wild, wild at heart sort of adventure in me. I'd come back and I was looking after, I was raising this, um, my brother now. I thought, well, I can't do it full time and I can't have that adventurous life, but I can join part time and have a taste of it every so often. So I volunteered. To, so re- reservists only had to do the first three weeks of basic training. Yep. And I volunteered to do the full 12 or full 11 weeks because I was just having so much fun <laughs> at, uh, at recruit school for, because for me it was like a holiday. Like, you know, I had at home, I had to work. I had a, I, by then I already had my own business. I was, sub, I was a subcontractor. I had three or four guys working for me and then I'd come home and I was cooking dinner and looking after a kid and dealing with all of the problems that come with being a single parent. Um, wow. Yeah, it was tough. It was a really tough life at 22, 23 trying to play football as well, trying to deal with relationships that weren't working out. And then I went to the, I went to the Navy and it was like, you're telling me I just got to get up at 6am, make my bed, march my ass down to the mess hall, have bank, have a buffet breakfast every morning, run around, shoot guns, do obstacle courses, learn how to march, go get dinner every night and get in bed by nine o'clock and do it all again. And that's all I got to do. This is the best life ever. This is like a Kentucky tour for me. It's interesting how when there's like consistency and, and things are a bit like done for you in a way, you can fall in line. It, you can see how it's yeah. really made for some people. The, 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 the discipline, because, because there was so much chaos in my childhood, I thrived on the discipline. Like I, in fact, that's, that was one of the greatest... Um, one of the greatest draw cards for military life for me or for service life was the, the discipline that it was so, and it was a band of brothers and a lot of the, I remember when I was in recruits, I was like, Hey man, what I said to a friend of mine, one of the guys I met, I said, he was from Queensland, country, country town in Queensland. And I said, why did you join the military, mate? 
He goes, you know what, Benji? All my friends back home play rugby, and I sit in the football club rooms, and I just sit there thinking, God, I want more than this life. All they, all they do is play rugby, drink beer, and go work on the farm. And I just looked at him, and I just gave him this biggest hug. And like, I finally felt like I found my people, do you know what I mean? Because it resonated with me. Yeah. Big time. Big time. So it was hard to, to, to meet those like-minded people and become a, a, a tight-knit group, you know, and my squad, the, the, the other members in my squad, they nominated me to, to lead their unit readiness evaluation. They nominated me as a squad leader. I, helped, I mentored them. I, 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 I mentored them on all our exams. I got the guys fit because I was already um, – I was, I was, like, in pristine condition. Like, I was so fit at that time. I, um, you know, like, I had this amazing crew of friends in the, in the military – and it was really tough to, to kind of leave that and go back to the, back to, I guess, civilian life, especially because it's like you have this incredible life-changing experience where you realise, well, hang on, all these people believed in me to, to lead them through their unit readiness evaluation and you've got all these skills, Benji, and in the military, you, everyone believed in you and you, you won the squad, I won the sportsman of the intake award which was and then i also the bit the greatest the greatest um accolade i got from the military was that my 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 peers nominated me to lead them that was the greatest you know greater than any other award but so then to go from that and then back to being a single parent in a small one mind mentality town it was tough (laughs) i bet it was tough so, and just feeling like, um, because, you know, I had that, I believed I wanted more. I believe there's more out there. I, I got to the military and realized that there was more out there and that there was a whole world of people from different cultures. And there were like, uh, there were Polynesian guys and guys, uh, Islanders and Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal kids all, all in the military, in, in the Navy with me. And I grew up with Aboriginal kids and we walked to school barefoot every day. And there was Chinese kids and Filipino kids and Taiwanese kids. And, yeah. and here in Melbourne where I grew up, it was just white Australians. Where'd you grow up? In, I grew up in a little town called Mombok. I'm in Mombok. Yeah. Yeah, I played Mombok in soccer over the years. Did you? Yeah. You probably you probably have the same friends. Sher- Sherbrooke. Uh, they used to be... Sherbrooke, I know, is up that way as mm. well. But yeah, we, we played them in the juniors and Mombok yeah. more as the seniors. Well, look, look I'm going to tell you, the Mombok is a beautiful community. Yeah. And look, those guys and that whole community got behind me when my mum died and my I needed help. Those That community ca- bound, came together... And really supported me. You know, I always had work. I always had people looking out for my brother. They did a fundraiser at the football club and raised money for me. Like, I had this amazing community of people that were looking out for me. But that didn't mean I didn't feel ostracised because this community of people were all two-parent families, all white Australian kids, all... Um, coming like living in complete homes. Yeah, and I was literally the only brown kid in town. It's not necessarily anything they were doing actively. It was just the lives were so different. They just it was like for me, I was I was a starving kid in a candy shop, and I was just looking at all these complete families, thinking to myself, "What the hell? 
where's where's mine? You know, and so it wasn't. It's, it's not. It's not to say that there's nothing. They did nothing wrong. Yeah. But I just felt that I was completely. I was an alien. Yeah. On another planet. You said before, like, where are my people? Or, or you'd found yeah. your your people, your person in in the navy when you were there. Yeah, because the look service life, defense force life, it does attract a certain, especially. The, the the jobs that I was attracted to attract attract a certain demographic of people, a yeah. certain breed of people, a certain certain mindset of people, and I did I did find those people, yeah, in the military, yeah. You mentioned at the top, and you've written quite a bit about it at the start of the book. Your marriage. How did you meet your wife? Was this after the navy, and how did that all come about? And ultimately. And if you want to share parts of Yeah, so, you know, mate, it's amazing you just... So, literally, I got out of the military. I started working as a reservist, but then very... Uh, sorry, very soon after I I joined the reserve teams, they stopped parading, which means they, they disbanded in Melbourne. Wow. Uh, so, and I just... I was just... I'd started in my own proprietary limited business at 25. So, I was snowed under with work. I was getting more work than I could keep up with, so I had no time for the Navy. And then, yeah, I met my wife shortly after. We were just out with friends. We were together eight years, and it took probably she – like, she was a beautiful person. Like, she was incredibly nurturing, and <clears throat> I talk about it in my book. So I talk about it in my first – so this is my second book. I talked about it in my first book. I said for all the pain and the, the trauma and the – the suffering I'd, I'd been dealt as a child and through adolescence and through my early 20s. Scarlett, it's a pseudonym, but Scarlett was the, um, she was like, she was the thing that came into my life and balanced everything out. Mm-hmm. So she was the, 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 the balancing force, like the power that came in to bring me, you know, to equalise my life. And um, and she really was. She We had eight amazing years together where she, you know, she she we just helped each other grow and she yeah she was a really good person but um look i think in the end because you know I, I was i was a troubled i was a, i was a really troubled individual growing up there was there was a lot of uh there was a lot of different trauma through all of it so she really supported me and i think one of my greatest traumas was that or was that one of the pressures i put on myself was i wanted to be the provider for my family I didn't want to, um, <clears throat> like my dad had walked out, you know. Yeah. So he had left a giant hole. So when uh, there was a, there was a huge global financial crisis in 2011, 12, yeah. my company we just started losing a lot of work and da 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 da. I had to start laying staff off. So huge, huge waves of anxiety, sure. and then, um, but she supported me through the whole thing. Then I, I applied for the fire brigade. Didn't get the job. Got the news I didn't get the job two weeks before our wedding. <laughs> wow. Huge waves of anxiety. And I just she just said to me, because the first time I had those massive panic attacks was it lasted like nearly two weeks. The second time and we were two weeks out from our wedding and she was like, Hey mate, you gotta get your shit together. And I was like, Yeah, I know. I really fucking do. Like, you gotta pull it together, Benji. You gotta you gotta you're gonna, you're gonna marry the woman of your dreams in two weeks, and you gotta wow. You gotta pull it all together. Do you share that in the book? I I could have gotten it wrong, obviously, because it's your life. But do you try to join the police force? Yes. Yeah, so look, 
because so my brother grew up, so I'd always impl- I'd always planned to join the navy to go okay. back to, to go back into service life full time, and then become a clearance diver, and then go on do a transfer and mm-hmm. go for the SAS and do any well, any of that sort of stuff, you know. The harder the better was, was what I decided. But um, when I met, when I met, look, Claire's her name. <laughs> so when I, Scarlet is just a, her her name mixed up, yeah. turns into Scarlet. Yeah, there cool. you go. So when I met Claire, uh, it was kind of like this fork in the road because the paperwork was there. And I was like, well, do I really want to keep joining, chasing the testosterone fueled lifestyle of clearance diver mm. and this, you know, gung ho, you know. That a boy kind of get some kind of lifestyle <laughs> sounds awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> or like this is a this is a f- real opportunity to have my own family because this woman loves me and I do. Lo- I was genuinely like, madly in love with her and we were, you know, even in the early days we were like, yeah, let's have kids. We'd have cool kids. We'd have pretty little, you know. So there was this opportunity to really have a, a family with her. And that was the that was the that was the driving force, man. So yeah, when did you get married? How, got, how long into the relationship of eight we years? We got married, so we were together eight years. We got married at six years and we were together, we were married for two. Okay. So, yeah, I, I turned my back on military life. I focused on the relationship and I said, well, now I'm going to apply for, mate. So I spent the, I spent eight years of our, that my life. I applied for the fire brigade, took, it was a three-year application, got to the final, you know, got to the end and didn't get didn't get the didn't get the job. Applied again and applied. Then I went for the CFA, the CFA, and all. It was, um, I think it was four and a half years or something of applications for the for the fire brigade. During that time, I was also applying for the uh, airport firefighters. Then I also applied for to to rejoin the the, the reserves. Yep. It just kept everything just kept coming to a, a brick wall. The the the. the the recruiters in the military for the reserves, they kept losing my paperwork or it was six months went by. I was supposed to receive a call and I never got it. And then they'd lost the paperwork. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And then I, I was supposed to, um, I got to the, to the final um, stage in the other recruiting and they weren't happy with my driving record. I needed to keep a clean driving record. The next minute I lost three demerit points for not wearing a seatbelt and another three demerit points for talking on my phone. And that was it. You know, it was just it was just one thing after another. It just kept coming to a, um, a dead end. Right. And then so so in that time with with Claire, she she just went from strength to strength to strength. So she she did a university. She got her masters. She got her first job. She got the next job. She got promoted. She then she got a government job. Then she got she's a state manager now. And then she, and her trajectory trajectory was- just went up and up and up. And I just kept getting stonewalled into every single, like, just for whatever reason, the universe, I just was not letting me in. And then, so then I thought, well, you know what? <laughs> After the fire brigade and the airport, airport airport firefighters and the reserves, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to join the police force. Mm. I'm going to join the police force because they'll just take anyone. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, that was my, um, that was my mindset around it. And plus, Claire's family wanted me to have a government job and government jobs meant stability and security and discipline. And those are the things that were missing in my childhood. So that's why I was so drawn to it. Plus the camaraderie and the mateship. 
so yeah, man, two year two year application for the police force. That's what three years for the MFB, three years for the CFA, two years for the police force. In Got, the eight years you were with in the eight years we were together, yeah. Wow. So then yeah, got to the police force and it was a two-year application. Got Again, got to recruiting, shined through. The guys, my squad nominated me as a squad leader in week two or three. I really picked up the, I picked up the academic stuff really quickly. So I got to the academy early every morning so I could tutor my, my other squaddies. And by teaching, we learn. So I just reinforced the, the learnings on my my end really quickly. So I got 100% in every single one of my exams, wow. which are just multiple choice exams. They're not hard exams. They're really not. They're really not. So it's – and they're like – they're designed to to not so you don't fail. But so I was still set in, sitting as, as ducks of the class. I was also one of the fittest because at the time I just, I just won a state boxing title – the, the month before I went into it to recruiting. So I was 81 kilos, you know, whip it strong, whip it fast. And yeah, again, it's same, same as that, that, that experience in the, in the Navy, I was um, just shining through and you yeah, got to week 11 gun week. We had a week off of leave. And obviously during that eight years, I'd also written a book about, my my early life which we've touched on and it just i talked about i talked about all those the the, the, the barriers and the blockades I'd, I'd experienced as a child yep. and how i came through them and that growth mindset i realized i had and how i i talked about it. And i went and met with the counselor and i talked through all my trauma and i even talked to her for years about the the the, the the problems I was having at home raising my brother and she gave me strategies to, to work on being a better parent for him so that, like I'm a 23 year old kid getting getting coached on how to be a parent by a counsellor and every time I offered to pay her money she said Benji I'm not going to take your money you know this is important this work's important so she was she was a, she was ace so I did I would have done thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of therapy for free wow. over the years with her <clears throat> so I talked about all that in my first book and then meeting my wife and having a stable relationship and talking about children and getting the the job in the police force and going to serve the community and be and showing other people from low socioeconomic backgrounds that they too can rise above and become an upstanding citizen in society and that was the the end that the, the story was that I'd got this great job I was doing well I'd come through trauma I'd overcome it all I had my wife we were about to start our own family the end <laughs> and that was the story and that was the book and it was flagged as being a, a really good uh, book because at the time I was also boxing and I was doing a lot of work with youth and some uh, some youth work and stuff like that with the boxing gym and everyone I spoke to who read the book said it was amazing and it was a story that needed to be told because there, were, there was a lot of dark, there was a lot of trauma. <clears throat> there was a lot of trauma growing up. So yeah, but then the, the police... so. One of the things that happened is like, I'd already had some speaking gigs engaged. So uh, some like through the boxing club and, and through, like they'd already said, Benji, we want to come do some speaking gigs and if you sell the book, you might start selling copies and once you have your book. So in the police force, if you want secondary employment, you have to flag it with, <clears throat> with, with management first. Sure. So that was my second employment. 
look, I might make some money off this book. The book I've told you about a dozen times. The book I told you about in the recruiting process. The book I used in my psychological interview and I gave a copy of the, my, my manuscript to the psychologist to, to do a full psychological evaluation on me. <clears throat> the book that hasn't been a secret the whole time I've been recruiting that now at week 11 you're only just going, what the hell is this? And in that book, there are some admissions of guilt about taking illegal substances and, you know, having a, an altercation with a man on the football field in, in a fight. That's, um, that's an indictable offence. That's an assault. You've assaulted a man on a football field as an adult at age 19. That's an assault. We cannot employ you as a police officer. We're going to stand you down. You're basically fired. <laughs> At week eleven, I said, "Are you kidding me? I'm the uh, I'm the I'm I'm about to lead my squad through their graduation parade, and you know I've been nothing but an upstanding recruit. I've been the, I've, and now I'm I'm losing my job. It's been eight years to get this far. I'm at week eleven. We're about to be sworn in." And I've done everything right. And you're going to fire me. Yeah. And that's where it was. It's heartbreaking, man. Yeah, man. It was. It was a journey to get there. And it was like a house of cards. What'd you do next? Because it doesn't, you know, the end. Well, you know what? That was like, um, so for me, like, I think it was just, it was it was like this final thing. Like, are you kidding me? This has happened after the fire brigade and the, the everything. It was like the universe is telling me something. Like, yeah. what am I missing here? That I, I'm not going to be a government employee. This, there's, there's a reason all of this has happened, you know? And the irony was that I'd written this book about gr- growing through some some pretty hard times and all the lessons I'd learned. Right. And the book was the, you know, was the thing that brought me undone. So look, I, I went home and I just told Claire. I said, "This is what's happened," and she just couldn't believe it. It was tough. I got really depressed. I wasn't allowed to work. I was actually stood down from the police. So I wasn't allowed to work. I had, and I just had major, major depression and anxiety after that. And uh, it was three months of hell for her. And um, yeah, look, it just it wasn't it wasn't an easy time for anyone. But look, at the end of the day, look, you know, it it was it was it was probably just a little bit too hard for her. So it just it, the, the 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 I came home one day. We'd had an argument, and she just said, "Look, I'm." I'm this isn't working. We, we have different, especially after the um, after the whole police force thing. It was like, well, I'm going to go back to roofing because we we were actually at the time we were also trying to we we had very very serious talks about starting a family. Yeah. Um, and that was you know we were literally I was about to get sworn in ducks of the class and yeah, I think I ran the I think I ran the 2.4 k time trial in. Um, seven fifty eight or something stupid like that. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. So Quick. it was like, um, yes, yeah, so we were, we were, we were, family was on the cards. All our friends were having kids. Yeah, all our friends were getting married. 
that was just we were 32 33 years old that was the next logical step and it was yeah I'd written about it it was like a dream come true for me especially being a passenger in everyone else's family you know I was about to be my own you know have my own so so yeah there I was I think it was 33 years old I just lost my the career was taken away and my wife had just left me I was living back in Mombolk and you know like that was like going back in a time warp there was um there was just hard it was a really hard time and I spent the next I think 18 months just pretty much at the very bottom of the barrel of society <laughs> my dad died a few months after that so yeah it was like a trifecta of of um a trifecta of events that just led me on this. I just went on a real path of destruction. And I mean, really, but like on a real, like I had no, <clears throat> I was complete, it was complete reckless abandonment. Yeah. I, I was just really um, like, I'd always, I'd always look, my, my fa- people in my family have an addictive personality. Yeah. You know, my dad was, had his problems with alcohol. My brother and sister have also had their own struggles with um, substances and everything else. And, I'd always fought. I always fought against that. I, I always chose the fitness, the fitness path, and I, I buried. I, I dealt with my issues through works. So I worked until my hands were bleeding raw. I became a workaholic. You know, people have like, look. I don't even want to compare myself to like David Goggins, but you know how he's a complete, like he's a complete. Have you read his books? He's yeah. a complete psychopath. That guy. Yeah. But it, it's. It resonates with me because I would just drive myself to breaking point every time and just keep going and keep going. And then I'd go to work. So then I'd go to the gym and I'd just work out for three, four hours in the gym. I'd get up and go to work the next day and I'd just, I would kill myself every single day working like that, you know. But when, all, when it all fell apart, I just went, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to just give in to, to, um, to temptation and just just said yes to pretty much every drug and every substance and every liquor I could get my hands on and just tried to go numb for a very long time. For about, well, not a very, probably 18 months of my life, I was just, yeah, really struggled. Um, This is post-divorce. This is just after, this is while we're going through the divorce. So we were separated. The divorce probably took... 12, 15 months because, yeah. you know... Paperwork and bullshit. Paperwork. We were going back and forth for six months. It didn't it didn't serve any kind of... You know, the, the, even the police force wasn't final for six to eight months after the after being stood down. <clears throat> so... That, yeah, those sorts of things, leaving someone in limbo, mm. I feel like would be so unsettling. Like yeah. You've, you talked about living in 39 houses. Yeah. As a 40-year-old. Yeah. You know, quick math. It's like one a year. It's one a year, mate. Right? It's not hard mm-hmm. to do that. But I'm sure at times you probably lived in some houses a little bit longer. So then there's probably moments where, you know, yeah, way way less. Like I'm guessing when you were with Claire, you were probably yeah. somewhat stable there for three eight years. years. Three years. We we moved around. But, you know, in that age, that age when she's at university, so we moved somewhere that was close to university. Then. Yeah. You know, we moved over to the western side of town because or the, we wanted to be by the beach or we wanted to be, in, we lived in Turak for a year or yeah. that was all put of, sort of fun. But then but then when you're like completely transient and not able to settle and yeah. be like a consistent routine, that would be so <clears throat> hard. And so yeah, what got you out of that period of 18 months where I'm like, I'm 
looking at you now, and it seems like it's like is it fair to say one of the well, probably the darkest period of your life? Yeah, I would definitely say I would agree that was one that was the darkest period of my life. But look, I remember when I was a kid, I had a, I had moving down to a fine art. You know, like I had boxes stashed behind my bedhead, and I had like this one folder that had my passports, my birth certificates, all those. Like I had a list of all the the, the who I had to contact for my change of address and who I had to contact or a list of the houses I'd lived in. And like I had those lists like in a little folder. Yeah. And I remember when I, and I just, it had become a fine art for me. But I remember when I, that, that time I broke up with Claire when, when we separated and I had to leave, I, I opted to leave the house and she kept, she stayed in the house. It became, it just became this familiar pattern for me that, I grabbed two bags of clothes because two bags is, is just enough and everything else just got left behind because it's nothing. there was no value in those material things and the only thing I grabbed was my folder, you know, and I knew that folder and that it just I put that on my front seat of my car and it, I was just bawling my eyes out because I was back in, I was back in the bloody mix and I still got that folder and that's the horrible part. <laughs> Yes, I've still got it. So, yeah, it was really just especially because the circumstances around that whole episode were where I literally, we were trying to have a family and I was the I was a star recruit and I went from that to just sleeping in the back of my car wondering what the fuck just happened. And, yeah, then my dad died. And what was <clears throat> so I I can remember this. This is also a pivotal moment. So it was about eighteen months. I was I was just at the bottom of the barrel, and I, it got to New Year's. My dad died in November, and I ended up back in Sweden for his funeral. And it was <clears throat> I got back to Melbourne. Sorry, I was in the Philippines. Then after the funeral in. Late December, I ended up back in the Philippines for Christmas with my family, <clears throat> and I was—I remember it was New Year's—and I went to this just a beach in the Philippines called Zambales. No, no white tourists, just—and I—I remember thinking to myself, "That's if I live another year like I did, I'll be dead." You know, didn't really bother me, but you know, I'll be dead or bankrupt or both, and I didn't didn't bother. That's that's right. This is where my headspace was at. So earlier that year, before my dad died, so I think it was in August, September, I'd, after the the police thing, I got another job. And then the other job just didn't work out. And I was just like, fuck, you know, this is done now. So I just had no, I had no idea where I was going, what I was doing. I had no job. Wife, dad hadn't died, but he was about to die. So I just went to the bank and got a, I got I had two pay slips from my last from my job and I said so they didn't know I'd lost my job. And I just went and got the biggest personal loan I could I could get my hands on. Yeah, well. And I just went I'll just I'll just drink this money until it's gone and I'll probably be dead, you know. Wow. That that was that, that was, was the mentality. Mo- that was the mentality, yeah. So that was the money that brought me to the Sweden and then that was the money that brought me to the Philippines for Christmas and I remember sitting on a on a beach thinking if I do another year of this, I'll be dead. 
I'll be dead. Did you try to do another year of that? It was another year of that, yeah. <laughs> no, so then I um <laughs> I got back to I got back to Melbourne and I just I, I just couldn't do it. Sorry, it had been nine months. Yeah. It had been a year since I was stood down from the police and it'd been nine months since we'd we'd separated. Yeah. So then I got back to Melbourne and I said to uh Victor, who was like um a guy in my life at the time, I said, Victor, I'm gonna buy a van and I wanna I, I wanna travel. I need to get out of here, you know. Like I've always wanted to travel. I've always wanted that wild life, and uh, life has always kept me here. And so then the very next day, he found a van for me. He goes, uh, one of the guys in the band, he's got a van, and he's selling it because he's you know da da da. da. So I bought it. It was a Ford Courier, I uh, sorry, a Ford Transit van. Yeah, that's the one I went, and that was the first the first van I looked at. Didn't even look, and I just bought it there and then on the spot. And that's the one that I I ended up building a camper van out of. And travelled around, like, it was a year, to, another whole year to build that. So it was two years of that that whole tra- limbo of my life was two years. <clears throat> so it was another year to build the van. And then while I was building the van, I needed, I got my motorbike licence. And, you know, I, I wanted to buy a, I just wanted a, I just wanted a motorbike that, would take me to the supermarket to go grab groceries while the van, like if I was on a beach or, you know, like in Bondi or something like that, and I could just leave the van and yeah. buzz around. I thought it'd be cool. Absolutely. So then I, um, yeah, I bought a motorbike. It didn't, it was, didn't pass roadworthy. So it was, I bought a posty bike. And then the very next bike I looked at was that, um, was a WR250R, which is a basically an entry level road registered dirt bike. Yeah. And the guy who was selling it, had a whole bag of kit and it all just fit me like a glove. Oh. And then I just had that van and I had the, and it was weird because then all of a sudden, like things were just starting to happen. Like I was, I was coming out of this, this d- d- the real dark depression. And I, I remember sitting on that beach and just pleading with the universe to, to just, you know, bring something into my life. Just give me a sign. I'm just praying and begging you know, for a, like I had nothing left, you know. I had nothing left in me, so I was literally praying to God. I was praying to God to save me, you know. Had you prayed to God before? <sighs> the things that happened in my life in 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 earlier years that had made me question, um, that had made me question, I guess, the universe and the powers of the universe and the powers that be and the higher powers of God. Yep. So I, I don't affiliate with any kind of... Um, any one specific religion, sure. I really don't. But yeah, I get it, man. Like I, 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 especially after a life lived, there is there can't be a there can't be any question in my mind that there is a high power out there somewhere that is looking over me, has some influence on on the has a plan for what's in store for us, and. Um, so at that time, I'd, I'd never prayed openly to God, but yeah, I remember like literally after just losing my dad and, you know, the police force and that, yeah, I was just praying. I was just crying and praying and just pleading, just saying, please give me an adventurous life. I just want to get the hell out of here and escape my shitty life and give me nothing but adventure. Yeah, and I went back to Melbourne. Bang, that van came into my life. Three months later or six months later, the motorbike came into my life and all the gear fit me. And then 
we got through the divorce and then I started traveling and then within six months of traveling I ended up in in Kakadu which is the wildest part of the country it's the wildest part of one of the wildest parts of the world yeah um and that was and then all these these crazy experiences just started coming my way and um I remember I was sitting in Kakadu. So this is after, you know, we're probably jumping a bit ahead here, but I, when I got on the road with that van and the, the the divorce was finally finished, I just started saying yes to everything, you know? Like, and I started, I didn't know how to ride a motorbike, but now I had a dirt bike that was capable of going across <laughs> sand dunes and a friend of mine, and then I just started riding it into some really wild places, you know? So... I remember when I when I bought that the first trip I did in that van and that motorbike was down to this place well down to Wilson's Prom Wilson's Prom yeah mm-hmm. many people in Victoria will yeah. know yeah so at the time I was still just the weekend previous the weekend previous to going down to Wilson's Prom I had woken up I'd just been on a massive bender yeah so I, although I had the van and I had the like, I was still in a, in a really shit headspace the lifestyle was still the same <clears throat> lifestyle was still the same like and I was just trying to get by just get through each day you know doing just enough work to get just enough money to get loose you know and that was my life I had no future ambitions but the weekend before I went to Wilson's prom and I was just getting ready we just we just finished the divorce and I was just doing the finishing touches on all the things to get away I, I literally been on a massive bender, and I, I woke up on this um, on this park bench in on a, in front of a church. Believe it or not, so even so, I've worked out if you go to the end of Chapel Street. So we've been on Chapel Street, and I got on a tram that went the wrong way. By the time I realised, I must have got off or walked. I don't know, but I passed out in in the gardens of a church. There's a church at the end of Chapel Street, and there was this park bench, and there was all these kids, and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh wow. Yeah, so they'd had full church service. Sunday mass or something. Sunday mass, Sunday school kids group. Here's Benji. Here's Benji. Sunday bender. Covered in my, I'd spewed up, I'd spewed up all over myself and I'd pissed my pants. There was just piss all over the front of my jeans. Like I was was an absolute mess. And I can remember taking the tram back down Chapel Street and two o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon. So there's people out for lunch out in the cafes and I kept getting off the tram and just spewing up in the gutters right next to the cafes. Wow. And just trying to stumble and just, 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 just completely like gone. So the very next weekend I said to myself, I've got to get out of town. I just got to get the hell out of here. If I, I can't keep doing this. If I stay in town, I'll end up in the pub and I'll be just as loose as I was last weekend. So I went to Wilson's prom and I rode my motorbike all the way there and again, I didn't really know how to ride a motorbike. So that was like a major, a massive achievement. It was 300 Ks. And I hiked, I parked my bike and I hiked all the way down to the southernmost point of the country. And I remember having no food, no preparation, just a pair of bloody, just a pair of runners and some board shorts on. Just no idea what I was doing. And it was the middle of the night, it rained. And I was just, I thought about turning back a thousand times. And it was just like this, you know, I talk about it, I talk about it in my book the conflicting voices in your head, so that one voice that's derogatory and brings you down and and it's it's self deprecating and it's belittling and we have all got that voice that holds us back from doing those things, and I remember that night I talk about it in the book that this other voice started to shine through that just said Benji you got to go you got to keep moving forward you got to just get there don't don't worry you've got you've got some water you're you're not. 
you're not alone, even though I was alone in the in the darkness. And it's just like this conflict that the the two little voices in my head just firing away. And um yeah, I got there and I got I got into the camp, you know, after midnight or something and got to the southernmost point at daybreak in the morning and um hiked all the way back and that was sort of the start of that this this crazy adventure that took me across Australia. So amazing. So like you mentioned wanting to have a life full of adventure, but it wasn't like the clear thing like I want to cross the 10 Australian deserts. Like it wasn't that clear at that time. It was just No. I need to get out of town. Yeah. I need to change my environment even just a little bit. I mean it is a lot Chapel Street to Wilson's Prom is a big change. Yeah. <laughs> but that's fucking awesome, man. Like, yeah. So I, I knew I was, um, yeah, I was, I was in a bad state. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was, just, I was just, I was completely. I had no, there was just no. I had no future or no, no. I was completely. It was reckless abandonment. So, I had to get out of there, and I had to just start doing. I had to completely change. I had to completely change everything about my life, because where I was led to the worst path possible for me. It yep. wasn't smoking weed. It wasn't smoking weed in my bedroom. It wasn't drinking beers until I couldn't stand up at the football club. It was just like being the worst version of myself, pissed, pit, covered in piss and spew on a tram on Chapel Street. Like that was the worst version of me I could ever imagine. And that's who I'd become, you know? Well, I mean, it's the cliche, you know, the darkest before the dawn. Mm. Yeah, well, I couldn't get any lower than that. So, yeah, I, I started doing. I started this trip, and it was incredibly. It, it was, it was, it, it was completely life changing. Like, I, I did. I pleaded with the universe to, to give me this adventurous life, and I remember. So when I started that trip, I started going on these wild adventures. But then nine months later, I ended up in Kakadu, mm. and I just just happened to walk into a job there. In yep. this uh, resort, Kuinda actually. Okay. What do you call it in the book again? Welcome Waters. Have you been That's there? A, have you been to Kakadu? Never. Oh, but man. from what you write about it, I absolutely have to. Yeah. Yeah. I get, uh, you mentioned the word Kakadu. I mean, it's, I shouldn't say, <laughs> it's the password on my computer. <laughs> I'm going to have to change it now. Every time I open my computer, Kakadu. <laughs> so, awesome. um, like it, it is the wildest place, man. Like every time I talk about it, and every time my friends travel, and I get, I tell them, "You got to go here, check this place out, whatever." So, yeah, I remember sitting in the at the bar in Kakadu, you know, and with a couple of travellers, and I was sort of telling them a little about what where I'd been that day, and I'd been to a waterfall or I'd done something, and they're like, "Benji, man," and like. So the traditional owners of Kakadu, they invited me to go to explore their land mm. in Kakadu. Yeah. So I was given, um, I was given just open access to one hundred percent of Kakadu, whereas the general population of white Australia only gets to see maybe ten percent, a couple of waterfalls here and there. Yeah. And I just go riding my motorbike all over the floodplains, and they told me I was mad because there was buffalo and crocodiles in the rivers, and and I'm riding across these floodplains looking out for buffalo, and I'm crossing rivers, and I've got my feet up looking out for crocodiles, and. You know, and I was just doing it, and I was just—it was completely wild. Complete, I was actively looking for for buffalo out there. Yeah, and I got some amazing photos. 
And I, I talk about it in the book about these times where I'm just out on the floodplains with like herds of wild buffalo and wild horses running across the plains and pigs and, you know, magpie geese in the sky and sea eagles in the trees and snakes and just... And it's like I'm out in Africa. It's like the Serengeti. Yeah. And I'm just out there like a raw nerve on a bloody motorbike. <laughs> like, and there's no reception. So it's just complete peace in the wilderness. It's... If you could pick anywhere in the world to heal, well, that's the place. That's it. Mm. How long were you there for? I was there for five months. Wow. So, I mean, the way you write about it, it seems like you are there for a lot longer. Yeah. Because the relationships you seemingly make and the experiences you have, just from me reading about it in 60 pages... Like, mm. it's, I think, one of the longer chapters of the book. It is, yeah. And, yeah, it clearly had a profound impact. Look, yeah, it really did because that place is really spiritual. Like, really, you can feel the presence of people and the presence of nature. In And I really, this sounds crazy, but I tuned into, like, you you get close to nature. You, you, you pick, you start to redevelop your that animal instinct like your that that gut feeling mm. you get it yeah you, you just feel the earth change you feel the temperature change you you start to tune into where north is and you start to remember which way you've come and you know the you, you can smell the buffalo in the <laughs> in the wild in the dust you, you'll be riding through your motorbike across the floodplains and then you'll just get a, a whiff of buffalo hide and the, the the hairs will stand up on the back of your neck and you'll just tune in and then you'll stop, look around and then you'll see through the growth about 50 metres away, there'll be a whole herd of buffalo. Mm. You know, and that's... You, you only start to become attuned like that is if you spend time in country or in nature mm. because, you know, a civvy walking through the bush will just hit their head on a goddamn branch. A civvy... A civilian, yeah, civilian like, yeah, yeah. I'm a civilian too, but it's um, a tourist. It's just like a tourist, you know. Sure, tourists will walk out into the gorges in a pair of thongs, whereas you know, you're aware that the snakes in the trees. I don't know. It's it's, but yeah. So Kakadu was this wild, magical place, and I remember I was sitting in camp with a tour, with a with a with a traveler, and he said, "Why do you do it, Benji? Like you're going out there every day, and it's dangerous." And you're going to die out there, mate. You could you you could die out there. People die out here every year. They get stuck in four wheel drives. Earlier that year, a guy had tried to cross a, a swollen river in his four wheel drive, and he was only ten k's from camp, from from the resort, and the four wheel drive got swept down the the river in um in the floodwaters. So he tried to jump out and broke both his legs. Hmm. Couldn't swim to the bank. Sat in his car for over a week until someone found him. Wow. Yeah, and the flood and the waters were going up. This is before the wet season. So the water's getting higher and higher every every day. And every day he'd sit there in his car with two broken legs and just watch the crocodile swim around and try and get the, the birds out of the trees and watch the horses come up and drink at the river's edge and all that. Do you live? He lived, yeah. He was he one. Of the, he was one of the tour guides at the at the resort. So what? he was rolling around in a wheelchair while when I got there. So that's what they said to me, Benji. You got to be careful out there, mate. 
old Jimmy was just 10 k's from the fucking old Jimmy. Old Jimmy was 10 k's from the resort and he's been out here for 10 years and he broke both his legs jumping out of his car. I mean, you, you mentioned as well in the book, there's moments where you, like the, the dingo stories on Fraser Island, how you don't get touched by them. And there's multiple moments in the books where you talk about, you feel like there's a higher power protecting mm. you, how yeah. you lose water or you lose fuel and always, like something always comes up. And it, it, it strikes me in this moment how, not that there's necessarily a, a line of demarcation, but if you have that life where before you were the traveller and the adventurer and the guy who was living in Melbourne and trying to make that, you know, life work and yeah. things were just like grindy and stoppy. And yeah. now it seems like you're just in a flow, correct? like a flow state. That's my observation hearing you speak about it. Mm-hmm. But can you like put a finger on why, like what, what changed for you? What do you feel changed in those sort of two, two things? It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like a completely parallel lifestyles. And yeah, because <clears throat> so what what changed is so when oh, so when I met that traveling is why do you do it, Benji? I said, you know what? Because I remember nine months ago mm-hmm. I sat on a beach and I pleaded to the universe to give me this adventurous life. I just begged and begged and prayed, and then I had a van. Then I had a motorbike, and then a couple months later, it dropped me deep in the heart of the wildest part of the of the country. And none of that's coincidence. None of that's a coincidence. It just happened. It just everything just fell in my lap. Yeah. Like that motorbike, I didn't have to search for it. I didn't even have to go out of my way to go look at it. It was on the way home from the gym, <laughs> you know. And I didn't look at another a single other motorbike. I never looked at a single other van. That van never missed a beat. You know that nothing. It just was meant to happen that way. Yeah. That was just, and so. When I ended up in Kakadu, it's like, well, if the universe has put me here and it's told me to go out and get after it and just, uh, it would be criminal for me not to take it up on its offer. Yeah. So I just had to. <laughs> so it, it almost seems like you've, you've asked and then you've literally received, you know, there's that saying, yeah, be, be careful. careful what you yeah. wish for. But I, I actually don't like that. Mm. I, I, not that I don't know if I coined this, but it's almost like be conscious of what you create. Yeah, that's the so we you, we all have an ability to create our realities, mm. and in that what this is this is all uh, I talk about it sort of subliminally in my book, but I literally I created that mm. and I did I just said yes to everything and I was still pretty reckless and pretty wild. And I did have, like, in the end, towards my end of the time at Kakadu, the traditional owners who'd said, Benji, go out and explore, they started saying, Benji, maybe don't go exploring so far by yourself. You know? Right. Yeah. It's pushing the envelope. <laughs> kind of, you know, I mean, you're just another dead white fella around here, but uh, we kind of like you. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, no, what changed is because when I was when I was like so I keep a journal and like when I was that that control so having no control when I was a kid and having complete chaos growing up it just meant I yearned for discipline structure 
and and like just a plan, a fucking plan in my life. You know, if I join the military, I've got a plan. I've got structure. I've got, it's all, there's no more chaos. And it didn't work out. Well, then I'll join the police force or I'll join the fire brigade and I'll have, the, I'll have the things I needed that I never had. And, but that was just what I wanted. Not what, I, not what the universe wanted for me. Like the universe has its own plan for me. Mm. And I still don't know what it is. But um, so it just, I think seriously, deep down, if I had gotten into the military or got into the police force or the fire brigade, I'd be comfortably numb doing a mundane job and I'd be miserable. And one day I would have got to my to the gates of heaven and God would have said, like, Benji, mate, you sat around at a copper's desk for 30 years of your life doing fuck all. You could have been out there riding motorbikes and inspiring people across and doing something wild. Like We had a better plan for you, mate, and you just didn't listen to us. We gave you that van and we gave you that motorbike and you still went back to the bloody police force or you went back and became a, a whatever, a government employee at Centrelink or whatever and you just didn't do it. Mm. You could have been so much more than just this another fucking recruit. Yeah. That's the, that was the feeling I got. That's, so I said to go for it. And then... I had this wild, yeah, these these wild adventures. Like we after Kakadu, I went and rode my bike to Cape York, mm. you know. And then when I came down the east coast of Australia, I rode my bike across Fraser Island and all the way to the Northern Lighthouse. Yeah. And I nearly got stuck out there because the tides came up, and I had no, I hadn't planned for that one. I hadn't planned for the tides. I looked at, I did my, I did my recce, and I looked. There was only a hundred and something kilometers there and back to the ferry, so I rode my bike all the way up in late the afternoon and I was supposed to get all the way back to the ferry that afternoon but then the, the tides came up and I got stuck in deep sand and my, I didn't have the right tyres on and all this stuff. And I was like, "If there's, there, there are some, I'm in some real deep shit. There are dingoes out here. i got no camping gear and I'm going to be out here taking like fending dingoes off all night yep. if I don't get back to, to get, you know, to population. That was a funny. That was one of my best. That was one of my most fun adventures, actually. This real, which I was racing the tides, you know. Yeah. But then, so after those wild, like chaos, really wild, like, and I met amazing people along the way, and everything just started to flow and work. Yeah, Europe. I got, um, I got back to Melbourne, and I got back to Melbourne, and within twelve hours of being back in Melbourne, my phone started ringing. I was back on a job site. And I had builders asking me about their project. And I just, I was like, man, I just, I just wrestled an alligator. I just got chased by a buffalo. I, I just sat with eagles and just, I just, you don't understand. And they're like, when can you get this job done by, mate? And I was like, I'm not ready to come back. It's not. Not ready to plug back in. To I'm not ready to society. I'm not ready to plug back in. So I spent, I then I just started planning the uh, the trip across the desert. So I'd only been riding a motorbike just just over a year at that point and I'd, I'd done all those, gone through all those wild adventures and it, it, it raised some eyebrows. I had some articles written in some magazines and, um, you know, got, got, some, got some people talking about uh, who's this crazy guy doing all this shit. And then, so... I, I really wanted to find that next adventure, you know. I had it in my head. I just wanted to do it. And 
I look, I started doing the research into Central Australia and the ten, I found out there was 10 deserts in Australia and then I realised that well, people cross the Simpson Desert, there's something that people do all the time and there's the Canning Stock Route, well, geez, that, that covers three deserts and then, but there's, there's like, you know, four more, six more deserts in Australia, well, what about all these other ones and there wasn't much known about them and so I just zig and zag, I, I just started planning. I started doing mission planning and after everything I'd learnt, riding in Kakadu and riding in Cape York and riding through Western Australia and Steep Point and the Kimberley and all those crazy adventures, I sort of had some, I guess I had some, I'd, I'd learnt a few things along the way. Mm. And again, coming back to society, all my friends are still sitting at the pub, still invited me out for beers and I went back out for beers and I found myself sitting on that park bench again thinking I can't be here. This is mm. not where I need to be. This is not where my life leads me. You know, I cannot go back to my old life. And um, so I planned that te- that expedition across the desert. I left in the start of July. I spent nearly 40 days riding, living out of my motorbike. So I had two saddlebags just with some dehydrated meals. I just worked out there was like little pockets of population or a, a cattle station or a servo or, a, you know, roadhouse or something anywhere. And I spent 30 days crossing the deserts of Australia. I lost nearly 10 kilos in that time. I had some really, really, really far out close calls. And I got out to the other end and, yeah, set, set a world record, which was, it was, uh, it took me 30 days to cross and nearly 7,000 kilometres. And I set, it was recognised as a world, Guinness World Record as being the, it was brought in as the fastest person to cross the deserts, but, you know, Makes me the first person to cross the desert, all yep. ten deserts, solo and unsupported across yeah Central Australia. So yeah, that was my claim to fame. <laughs> Incredible, mate. Yeah, the, the book does it really well. And there's so many brilliant stories that you share in that. I think you sort of touched on it before in something you were saying when you're driving or not driving, rather riding across the Kakadu, and I'm sure at various parts of you know those thirty days across the deserts. And your book's aptly titled Hunting Fear, but it's mm. like you're not riding away from these problems that you had back. You were like sort of chasing and hunting this new thing. Yeah. Could you talk to that? So, yeah. So the reason I chose the title Hunting Fear is because um, I think it, it, it speaks a lot about those those two inner voices that we always have. You know, that, that one, that self-deprecating one, and the one that says that you can do things. And when I went through my divorce and everything, I spoke about it, like those two voices were at war. And the one that always won out when I was at the bottom of the barrel was that self-deprecating one. And that voice that says, you can't do this, mate. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing this. Well, I just started to override that voice with, with now you can, mate. Get on your bloody bike. Get riding. You're scared shitless, mate. Or pack more water, grab more tools, and get the fuck on your bike. You know, <clears throat> and that was that was those are the conversations I'd have with myself. You know, I, I talk about it in the book. I always refer to myself as Brundon. You know, um, yeah. So yeah, th- so I would be scared shitless. You know, scared shitless. Fuck, I want to ride out to this gorge in Kakadu. It's only open, like it's you know, it's women's business. You can't really go out there, but 
I don't know, no one's been out there. There's no real tracks. You just kind of kind of go this way and follow the creek bed for fuck, 50Ks. Fuck, no, nah, maybe I should just get the fuck on your bike, Brandon. Stop fucking whinging about it. Grab some tools. Tell someone where you're going. Bring your compass. Bring a beacon. What's the worst thing you can have? Bring your first aid kit. Done. Good. You're going to get some pain out there. Grab pain relief. Bring that. Grab those things. Put your first aid kit on your hip. Don't bleed out. Bring a tourniquet. Get the fuck on your bike and go. You just sit here, drink piss and be a bum. Or you can go out and be a fucking legend. <laughs> Do it. You know? Those are the those are the um those are the conversations every single time. And it it so the the, the buffalo. The buffalo was like, man, you got no idea those things are huge. They're like walking dinosaurs <laughs> and they are aggressive. And the thing I just got obsessed with them. I just wanted to go I just wanted to touch one. Hell no. But uh, (laughs) I just wanted to sit there and see them because everyone, you could see that they were like, they're huge and they're invisible. But you'd see their tracks in the ground all the time and you knew they were close. Sometimes you'd smell them. Well, they sit in the water. Like, what do you mean invisible? They were just (laughs) really good at getting in the bushes. Because they're so big, you, you, you can't see. All you can see is like a wall of. You kind of got to, instead of looking at the bush, you got to see through the bush and you might just see some movement. And it'll just be a giant black mass, st- like stomping slowly through the bush. Wow. But yeah, man, like their horns—they're they're a meter wide. They grab, they'll pick my bike up and throw you into the trees. Jesus. And they are territorial. Yeah. So a few times I found I come across buffalo and they charge and you, you'd put the bike. I taught myself how to put the bike in a spin and buzz back and buzz out the other way. A few other times I come across buffalo. And we just had a bit of a standoff. Clutch in, just rev the shit out of the bike and they'd run off into the bush. But before I'd done that, like, I can remember sitting in the bush and just shitting my pants. Like, just, like, petrified. And that, like, you should just get the fuck out of here, Benji. Yeah. And, like, nah, mate, grab your camera, get to the fucking billabong, take the photos. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the, um... Sounds, sounds like a pretty crazy voice, but um, it, th- those are the conversations. And sometimes you need it, though. Sometimes you need it. And, mate, like, I wanted to put that photo of the buffalo on the back page. There's this one photo I've got. It's in there somewhere. Let me find it here for you. But it's where I, I literally crept, crept to the edge of this billabong and just sat with this whole family of buffalo. Wow. Oh. And they didn't know I was there. There it is. I, I actually described the photo in the book. Yeah, right, page um, 139. So. Yeah, not to be fucked with. I do remember seeing that as I went. Yeah, and, and little, um, what's a bird just sitting on its ass? Mm, so there was a whole family of buffalo. And there was just, like magpie geese are these huge game fowl. And they just fill the sky at, at sunset. They, they, they come to Kakadu to, to nest and to, to lay their eggs and breed in the wet season, in the dry. So they just come thousands. They fill the sky. Like it's like a they, – they, they block out the sun, you know. <laughs> There's that meaning in the sky. And they're sitting there on the edge of the these these huge billabongs and there's crocodiles in the water, there's buffalo and there's birds in the sky and it's just, it's just out there and you're just one with nature and you're just like – how do I go back? Mm. 
how do I explain this to people when I get back to the world? How do I capture this? And so then, yeah, I had to write the book, man. Had to. I was compelled. In fact, it wasn't even my choice to write that book. It wasn't. I hadn't. It's like when the universe told me, gave me all those things and said, you have to have this adventurous life. Mm. Well, and I just had to do it. And then when I got back, I knew I had to write that book. I just knew it. And I went to a personal development course or seminar and I met this lady and I said, so what do you do with yourself? She goes, I'm an editor. <laughs> I said, excellent. How about that? And we, we talked and we connected and she was, uh, she's all into the self-help. Some of the children's books, she, she'd written children's <laughs> books. That the sub- subliminal message in the children's books were all about the power of the laws of attraction and the, the power of visualization and the children's books. So we had... We we were kindred spirits. Mm. Shout out to Lillian and Grace. So she she was she was my editor, just like that. Then mm-hmm. I met then I met someone else, and um, I met someone else, and, and she'd written her own. She'd self published her own book. She goes, I can take I can take you through the whole self publishing process. I was like, of course you do, of course you are, of course you do it. And now you're all here in my life. And after all the stuff that happened with the motorbike and the traveling and all that. When I started putting it out there that I wanted to write a book, I was like, well, all these people just came into my life. And I just, when they did, when I, when she told me she was an editor, I kind of laughed and I went, <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. Of course you are. And then I, I even said to myself, well, geez, how the hell am I going to find any time to write this bloody book? I'm working full time. And which is hilarious because then I lost my license. <laughs> I lost my license, which at the time you'd think, oh, geez, this is shit. But then, so that what that meant is I just had to catch the train to work. I was working at a, I was literally, because I was, I, this, so this is the, I started writing the book when I was planning the 10 Desert Ride. Yeah, right. Well, you, you said you journal and you have some journal entries in the book. Yeah. Right. So you obviously enjoy writing, mm. even if only for yourself. Yeah. So I, it is, um, it's cathartic for me. But so I started writing the book. And I actually, I actually only wanted to, to finish it on Kakadu and Cape York, and just say that was like this is this incredible adventure that I've been on. That I've finished. I went to Cape, the thing that had all this Kakadu stuff. So when I lost my license for three months, I spent. I had to be on a building site, so I was labouring. I was labouring in a commercial construction because um, I just again making enough money just to get to the next adventure and that's that was my traveling mindset so i just spend every night on the train i put my laptop out at 5 30 in the morning or 10 past 5 in the morning and i start typing typing in and writing notes in. i'll be writing notes in my in my notepads uh, in the end yeah so i'd write i'd write notes in my notepads in the morning and then in the afternoons i get on the train i just i'd either sit at transport bar and and write waiting for the later train and then i just write I just type chapters on my keyboard, laptop, all the way home, in the on the train. And sometimes I get so into it, I'd actually end up at the end of the train line, <laughs> and um, just sit, sit on the train and wait for it to go back into the city. And I get back off at my. I was living in at the time. I was living in Preston. Yeah. On so I'd get off at Bell Station. Yeah. Yeah. There so you go. That's how I wrote my book, sitting on the train. So that was the the silver lining for losing my license. And I'd written ninety percent of the book. And then that's when I took off and did the desert thing. Amazing. But the, the, the crazy thing about the desert thing is 
I visualized so much what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, what I thought wanted to happen. And the things that I visualized actually happened, even the the bad things. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like I always, I, I kind of joked myself. Cause after after all the things that were happening in my life, that the, the, the energy was crazy. I was like, you got to be careful what you think about, dickhead. Because I started joking to myself like, fuck. I was joking. With, imagine, I just know it. I'll get like, I'll get just to the end and I'll come off, I'll, have a mo- I'll stack on my motorbike. And guess what happened? 5Ks from the, like, the well 51, 51 wells on the Canning Stock Route. <clears throat> so you pretty much done the ride. 5Ks from well 51, I just had a massive washout and came off my bike, bounced across the track, watched my bike spin around in circles. Wow. <laughs> just as it was happening, I remember, you know, have you ever had one of those experiences where time starts to stand still and, like, you might be... F- where you just see everything in slow motion because that, that adrenaline kicks in. Totally. I remember sliding across the track and watching my bike do like 360s down the track and my saddlebags just exploding and shit just falling out of my saddlebags everywhere. Jeez. And I remember just watching it all happen and just going, you fucking thought about this, dickhead. You made this happen. You created <laughs> I created this, yeah. Well, you, I mentioned it before, but you write about it in the book and you've got these like... Benji Brumman keys and number three is having a plan and sort of the last line that you mentioned is visualization helps immensely yeah and then point five build belief by taking action those are two that stand out to me the visualization and then the taking action yeah and we mentioned as well before we started recording how these conversations for me always seem to come at a timely time Mm -hmm. it's quite yeah, serendipitous. So yeah, I would love for you to talk about visualization and, and I guess the taking action. You've obviously created all of that and gone and, and have now this, this Guinness World Record, which people are trying to trying, trying to break, break on yeah. you. Yeah. But dirty dirty buggers. <laughs> but what is what are you visualizing now for your life and how are you taking action? Because clearly you're someone who can tap into that and go yeah. with that flow and, and say yes to things as you've said. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, yeah, this is an interesting question, actually. So I do have that. I, I think we've all got that ability. But I think it's when you, through lived experience, you start to believe in it more. Like, if you can tell something, oh, man, you got to start visualizing and make things happen. And, like, if, if you're an atheist or a complete non-believer or someone who's never had that those experiences, like, whatever. <laughs> oh, you just want me to think about it and it's going to happen? I said, yeah, pretty much. That's exactly what's going to happen. Think about it and it'll happen, yeah. So, yes, it's – look, right now, I – so I really wanted to bring another team of people together and, and go across the 10 deserts again. You know, that's – again, I just didn't know what I was going to do after the deserts. And I, I wrote the book and then we went straight into lockdown – and there was all this, I guess there was like a bit of like excitement that I'd done this thing, like kind of like this notoriety in the motorbike world. Not, not, I'm not, I'm not big noting myself at all, but people were like, well, that's exciting. And that's this, this new thing. And there's this whole crazy thing. And this guy did it. And yeah, you know. of course. So I, I put it out in the universe that I saw. And I eventually, you know, I grew some balls. I was like, you know, I just want to take people across. I want to do it. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So I announced on social media, that's what I want to do. And then all of a sudden within a week, and I'd been looking at 
I've been looking at trucks. I've been looking at trucks for about six months and, and done some research and I looked at buying a fire truck because a fire truck already got a thousand litre water tank already on board and they're four wheel drive and you can modify them to, to take across the desert and all this stuff. Wow, that'd be amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, old fire trucks. And you can buy them for about $30,000. So, and they're bad. big five ton trucks, yeah. Jeez. But anyway, so I, I done all this research, but then I, I kind of like that voice was like, no, Benji, you can't do it. What about COVID? We might get back in the lockdown. There's all that, all this, this noise. So then I, I said, no, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. Listen to that voice. And now that I'm still Benji. And yeah, so then I, I, I said to the world that I was going to do it. And then within a week of that, a guy messaged me and said, hey, Benji, I've followed your progress. I've got my truck for sale. Is it something you want to look at? And it was a six-wheel drive army truck. <laughs> I said, meh, of course you've just asked me about that. And of course it's just come to my thing like that. No, 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 no. I was like, sure, I'll come have a look at it. And I looked at it and I went, mm, okay, okay. So this is before I looked at it. No, sorry, I did. I looked at it and I went, yeah, okay, this is fucking cool truck. It's a six-wheel drive. It's a two-ton truck. It's, it's pretty much these things were made that by the army to take cargo and men and supplies across the desert. Wow. So they're specifically made for what we wanted, what we need it for. And I was thinking about it and I thought, well, how am I going to, do I really need this truck? Am I gonna, what am I going to do with it? Da, 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 da. And then this guy rings me out of the blue. He goes, okay, Benji, how you going? Like, good. He goes, look, at Sam here from McLean Financial. You rang us about six months ago inquiring about some finance for a fire truck. Look, that finance is still good. Do you, do you want to talk about it again? I said, how much did I apply for the fine? He goes, and the, the truck was $32,000. And he goes, well, we've got you pre-approved for $35,000. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Said, Mate, start the paperwork. And I said, start the paperwork, get it sorted out. I'm going to go see this guy. And I'm still like 50-50 about it. I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this truck. So I said, listen. He goes, listen, I want you to have the truck, but I've also got other people and I don't want to lose the sale. So I'm going to give you till 7 o'clock tonight to think about it. I said, sure. I'm going to go to the gym, work out, and I always feel better after a workout. Went to the gym. So he was in Alinda. The gym is in Preston. So I drove all the way from Alinda to the gym. And these six-wheel drive trucks, they're, they're rare. There's only 600 of them ever made. Wow. Like for the whole for, for the whole Australian army. Yeah. So I go to the gym in Preston. I do a workout. I'm thinking about it. It's about 6.30 at night. Sorry, 6 o'clock at night. I go out the front of my gym. There's a six-wheel drive truck sitting out the front. No way. You've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> All right. Put my number on his on his windscreen wiper and said, man, I'm thinking about buying one of these things. Give me a call at me and tell me what you think. And, um, yeah, I got home. He, this guy rings me. He goes, hey, Benji, what's going on? What's your story? And he goes, mate, I did 23 years uh, in the Army, ex-army ex mechanic. I know everything about these trucks from top to bottom, and you'd be mad not to buy it. If that's exactly what you want to do, what you want to do with that truck is what they were built for. And he's the one who told me all about them and sent me links to all their information, their spec sheets, and gave me the manuals for them. And I printed out the manuals. The manuals are this deep. Like, I've got a whole box of manuals now, uh, all laminated. Wow. Yeah, so then I just, I rang the guy, and I hadn't even test driven it. I said, I'll just buy that truck. Done. I don't even, I don't even want, I'm not even going to bother, um... Like trying to crunch you on your price. I'll just, it is what it is. The universe gave you the 35K. 
you had a bit extra to spare if you needed. Yeah, stamp duty. <laughs> Pay him extra. <laughs> and then, um, and yeah, then the mechanic, the other guy, and it was just like, you, you can't say no to that. Now, yeah. look, we we got the truck built. You know, we got the truck built this year, and yeah. we had a crew coming along with us, and it was just, it was a war to get to the start line this year. There was a lot of things that came that popped up. When I look back, there were many things which were like, well, yeah, you, this is what you're supposed to do. It's like, this is you're supposed to go on this adventure, Benji, yeah. and you're supposed to write this book. And I have no doubt I'm supposed to take a team of men across that desert because there were so many things that, that came up that, that led me to believe that that is the, the true thing, especially the truck. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, oh, that's right. <clears throat> so then a couple months later, I was doing a job for a guy who ended up, there was another six degrees of separation. And I said, well, what do you do? And he goes, I install solar-powered energy kits into four-wheel drivers and RVs. I, I make, I, I turn things, in, I, I do off-grid power systems for cap for things. And he goes, okay, cool. I'm going to build this truck and I'm going to do this. And he goes, that sounds great. And we'll paint my roof first. And I said, yeah, great. I said, well, how about we, I'll do a great deal for you. And then it turns out his wife was my bookkeeper's sister. And then, and then they had another house and then another, and then six nine months went past. And then I finally had the truck and I was like, can you do the installing? Of course I can. So bang straight to him to the, he's done all the batteries, all the lights, the things like a Christmas tree. You've seen it, haven't you? You've seen the truck in my truck. Oh, not, not properly. Mm. So anyway, but it, then all these other hurdles came up in, in, the, in the lead up to this event this year. There was, there was real delays with, with and there was not, nothing I could control really. Like it was just, yeah. but we got, we got to the start line kicking and screaming this year. <clears throat> and then we, we packed the truck, we, we drove up into the country and we stopped in and saw Joe and, and, and Joel. And then we went to Rainbow where my block of land is. That's another, that's another crazy story. Like this block of land in Rainbow, I bought it. <laughs> it was like, I'll tell you that one in a minute. But then, and then we got to the, we got there and in, we had to delay the start date for a month because there was a huge cyclone that went through the Kimberley yeah. and destroyed the track and just, just flooded the desert in the northwestern part of the country there. So we delayed a month, which was good for us because it gave us an extra month to prepare the truck because I was running behind schedule. It was, a, it was a mad rush, but we got it done in the end. So I thought, well, that's great. It's good for us. But then we got there and we had the wettest – we've had the wettest season in, in history. Yep. Like it's, unpre- it's unprecedented in the amount of rain they've had in Central Australia. Yeah, wow. So the, the week we left, there was a huge rain ban that was – predicted to drop an annual rainfall in less than a week what? through the central deserts, yeah. Oh, my God. So everything from the Kimberley through Alice Springs all the way to the, uh, the Simpson Desert was completely flooded. So we had contingency plans in place and we, instead of having our start date here, we had a start date here and then we travelled north to another town and then that was going to get flooded and then the whole Birdsville track got flooded and then every road in western New South Wales got flooded and then we decided we'll go south first and we'll start in Kubipedi. And then the government, the, the Defence Force who owns all the like military, it's like military land in the great Victorian desert, which is north, central, south Australia. They just closed the whole desert and said, we're not letting any civilians in. It's too wet, it's too dangerous and it's going to be closed for up to a month. 
So we literally got as far north as far north as we could get in Victoria, and it was just the it was raining the whole way. Yeah. And eventually, Mother Nature just said, "No, nah, mate, you're not going across not the desert this year." It, it's interesting because I feel like something will come and i mean we get to have this conversation Mm. now in a selfish way for me that's quite fantastic but like going with the flow and trying not to force things Mm. i think you know it'll work out as long as you keep you know visualizing but taking that action and still creating things yeah there's a but i think a difference between creating and then forcing something when there there is look so that's what that's the, the, the whole point of me telling that story is because the moment that happened where it, it became completely apparent that it wasn't going to happen this year, that we'd done all this work and it was like there was nothing in my control that could could have changed in the fates of that, that expedition. You know, we couldn't have done anything differently. The first thing I said to myself is, what is the universe trying to tell me? What am I missing here? What is the message? What is the lesson here? Okay, so it's not supposed to happen this year. But I haven't lost any respect from any of the people who were who'd committed to come. You know, they'd seen me actually move in, move mountains to get that truck to where it needed to be and to bring it all together. Like I've written field manuals, sixty-seven pages thick, for this for this expedition. We got one of the things that happened that that was put the jeopardized that the expedition was that the we had a i had remote first aid courses booked in for some of the guys to come in and at the last minute that got cancelled because that we had no assessor god damn it so it was like all these things happened all the way in the lead up but to 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 get around that i was like well i need these guys to be first aid trained so I just wrote field manuals with medical, like all the things I'd learned over, like how to dress a wound, how to tell if someone's dehydrated, how to tell the difference between venous blood and arterial blood. And these are things I just learned along the way. And then I asked Jess, my partner, because she's a nurse, I asked her about all these other things. And then we just put this this like field manual together. And then we had simulations in the back of it. So we, I was going to do a full day of training on the truck and a, a half day of training on the truck and mechanical repair and a half day of medical te- infield medical testing because when we're in the desert, we're a thousand kilometers from any from, from the closest population. It might be hundreds of kilometers from the closest airfield and hours and hours away from rescue. So we we needed to be self sufficient, and we got sponsored by um, Survival First Aid. Survival First Aid they they make first aid kits and they they gave us a whole heap of kits. So I'd done all this work, you know. Yeah, and I had just. So I kept trying to find ways around all these problems that kept coming up. and But in the end, it was Mother Nature that said, no, mate, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And, the you, lesson and you listened, it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so I didn't, I haven't lost any respect. I didn't, I didn't lose any support. I've given myself another full year to, to restart, to, to re, to go for it again. Or if it doesn't happen next year, because of, for whatever reason, um, it, Bringing that, getting that truck ready under such duress, it brought me and Jess closer together because she was in my corner the whole way, you know. And then, so and that's a relationship that's it's starting to really grow legs. And I, I saw, I saw that there was that support in her, and you know, people saw the way I conducted myself and how hard I worked. And if you if you go to, like I talk I talk about it, I've written 
some newsletters about who would you go to war with and who would you have you, who would you have you, uh, I wrote a newsletter it said it's called um choose your wars pick your army like who would you go to war with and who do you want in your corner when all the things turn to shit yep. and the only way to um find out is is to live some some ch- challenging experiences for sure because everyone's your friend when the top when the going is good mate yeah everyone is and yeah, there were some real challenges building that truck, and it's it thinned it thinned out the herd. <laughs> so, so yeah, so th- there's lessons in it. So it doesn't always what you want, and what the universe has in store for you, are sometimes because I always wanted to be a cop and I always wanted to be special forces, but instead, I rode a motorbike across the desert and set a world record. Like, <laughs> but you don't know what what what's coming. You just don't know. Sometimes what seems like a failure is actually a blessing when you look back at it later. So even though there was the, 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 the you know, the, the desert got called off this year and it was heartbreaking to, to make that call. Like it was, the writing was on the wall as we left Melbourne and we drove up to the Mallee and then it got worse and we continued north and it got worse and everyone knew but no one was going to quit on me because they knew it meant a lot to me and I'm a stubborn fool, you know, and I just wanted to get it done. But I knew it was actually once they, once the government, once the defense force closed the desert down and Birdsville was cut off and the Birdsville track was closed and people stuck and who were in Birdsville were stuck there for up for a few weeks. Yeah. Like the writing. So it was really, it was a hard pill to swallow. But again, the, the first thing I said, well, what the, What's the, what, what's the lesson here? And then, so we got back to Melbourne and I, I booked, I just said, look, so me and my friend Joel, who was one of the guys that was on the trip with me, I just booked trip, a trip to the Philippines. I was like, well, there's, there's a reason, there's a message. There is a reason why that the trip didn't go ahead this year and now I'm in the Philippines. I didn't plan this, it's just happened. What, how am I going to, and I got back to the Philippines and I, ha- I reconnected with family. I haven't seen them since 2016, since before the pandemic. And I was like, I really want to reconnect here and keep my networks here open and, and keep a, a, a relationship with my Filipino past and my link, my, my, my culture. I was like, well, it'll just work out something. Something will happen. Something will happen. Like, I'm sure it will. There's a, there's a lesson in this. And... um you know, we spent some time in some pretty poor places and we, we saw some pretty, you know, for, for Joel, it's his first time overseas in, in sort of like in the real culture, in the, in the, in the thick of the population. Whereas for me, I, I've, I've been to the Philippines a dozen times now. I've, I've just, I'm used to it. <clears throat> but we saw some real poverty, man, like some real poverty. And I was like, I want to, how do I, why am I here? Why have I ended up here and how does this, what, what's the universe trying to tell me? And look, who knows? Who knows now? But the last the last couple of days I was there, I caught up with my, one of my cousins and I was like, how do I give back to the community? How do I keep my connections here alive? And so what are you doing now, Jasper? And he goes, I'm building schools in the jungle. I work for a not-for-profit organisation and we need help to raise money and awareness for kids in, the, in poverty and we're making a difference to some real poor communities. I'm like, oh, 
course you are. And Jasper is the cousin that spent time with me in the Kimberley when I did that trip across Australia. Yeah, right. So we have we're connected. You know, we've we've had some pretty cool experiences together. And I was like, hmm, interesting. Okay. So, and I was just thinking about, well, you know, now I'm here. The universe has brought me here. The desert's not dead. I want to keep my contact, my my connections here alive. He's doing some real philanthropic work. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to work this out. Maybe I should start a foundation when I get back to Melbourne or something like that. And it's like, this is crazy. These are thoughts in my head. These are thoughts in my head. The next, I got back to Melbourne about a month ago. I've had a conversation with a guy. He's put me in contact with another group of people. And, you know, now we've got those talks along the way. So we're going to start doing some, well, we're looking into foundations and, and getting, doing some philanthropic work. And, yeah, like another, you know, there's, there's so much other stuff going on. But, yeah. It's exciting, man. It's, it's interesting to see how the thoughts manifest into the creations in our lives. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, you on many more adventures and all of these things that you're, you're creating and, and helping your family back you just, in the Philippines. You just do not know, like, I don't know what's going to go happen next. You know, I'm, I don't think I'll ever have a, a quiet house in the suburbs. I don't think the deserts are dead yet. I think we've still got, there's still room in my future for, for another expedition across the desert. I just, like I said, the universe has a plan and you just got to listen to it. And there's a few things happening in work and things like that. And you just don't know what direction life is going to take you, but you just got to listen to the nudges and just like tune into that, I think is probably, I think the greatest message what I've learned through all these adventures and all the setbacks as well is that there's a lesson in all of it and there's a reason for all of it. You just got to tune into it, yeah. Great message, mate. This has been a fun conversation. <laughs> Thanks, mate. It's been great. You're welcome. I normally end on asking a, a question that I ask all guests. You somewhat have answered it potentially there, but I'll I'll give it to you regardless because, yeah, I really appreciate the wide-ranging responses to it. And it's basically... What advice would you give to your younger self? Now, I like to sort of pick an age based on the conversation that we've had. It seemed like five-year-old Benji had a pretty interesting trot there for a little mm. while. But even if it was your your younger, you know, teenage self, what advice would you like to go back and, and give if you could? Yeah, great question. And it's the advice I give myself today and it's the advice I'm going to give my future self as well. I said, do not... Do not get so anxious over things that haven't happened yet and just it'll all work out. It will all work out, yeah. There you go. Glad that I asked. Thank you very much, Benji. Any final thoughts, anything you'd like to share that maybe I haven't prompted with the question before you go? You know what, Rin? This has actually been uh, one of my favourite podcasts. I really And the way we came together, the way this all came about, it was just one of those, again, another one of those universal nudges. And I know we, we caught up briefly or just had a few messages on, on socials about trying to catch up before I went away on my trip. And I was just so under the pump, I had no time. And I, the reason I, I followed this up when I got back, even though like I've, you know, I've, we're all busy and whatever else, but the reason I followed this up is because, well, there was a reason that 
my book ended up in your lap and Joe messaged, mentioned you to me and me to you and brought this, this brought us together. And again, it's one of those universal nudges and I don't know what's going to happen or what's going to come from this podcast. But again, if the universe didn't want us to have this chat, then it wouldn't have brought us together. So that's why I followed it up. And this has actually been one of my favourite podcasts, one of my favourite chats. So I'm really grateful for you for, to, to have me on. So thanks, mate. I appreciate it. You're welcome, mate. Appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming. We'll end it there. Cheers, brother. Legend. And there it is, another episode of The Hope Initiative. Thank you again to Benji for taking the time, mate. I know that you weren't planning on being in Melbourne, but the universe has its way. So I'm really glad it brought us together at this time and stoked to no doubt speak more and catch up again in the near future. Thank you all for listening. This is a long one, just over two hours. I appreciate you being here. And if you've listened, obviously, all the way through, I would love for you to share it with someone who you think will get some value out of it. You can support both Benji and myself in the podcast with all the links that are in the show notes. So please get around that and subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a review, all that jazz. And until next time, keep creating your life and all the very best.